All right, go ahead and turn over to Hosea chapter 11. Hosea chapter 11. Okay. Uh, how about verses 1 through 4? Who would be willing to read verses 1 through 4 for us? Jonathan, thank you. I took them in my arms, but they did not know that I healed them. I led them with cords of a man, with bonds of love, and I became to them as one who lifts the yoke from their jaws, and I bent down and fed them. All right. So, several things that are going on here. Any observations from these verses? Well, I mean, even in this little section, he is jumping around in terms of the metaphors that he's using. So he called my son, and then it is I who taught him to walk, and then uh, I took them in my arms, which could either be what you would do with like an injured sheep or some other kind of livestock, or it could be with a child. But then in verse 4, when it says, I led them as one who lifts the yoke from their jaws and bent down and fed them, that's more of a picture of like an animal, right? So... The short answer would be he uses different imagery to describe different aspects of his relationship with them, right? So, right. So a son is sort of the one who's going to pass on your name and inherit under you in their culture. Um, a daughter is one that you're sort of watching over to give away in marriage. Sometimes he describes Israel almost in terms of like a wife. Which is, I mean, if the, the problem is if we put the metaphors right beside each other, we get a very strange or even a bad picture, right? But if we take them individually as illustrating different aspects of the relationship, there's tender care as with a child. There is um, uh, like good stewardship as with an ox. There is... Uh, loving affection as with a spouse, like there are different aspects of God's relationship with his people, I think. Any other thoughts on that? That, that would be my response, I think. Why does God use these different pictures sometimes in quick succession? Norma? Okay. Okay. So maybe to illustrate the full nature of God's relationship with his people, and then that inspires us to want to see God's forgiveness and relationship with him too. Okay? Good. Vindication of caring, but protection, nurturing, even healing is mentioned. Okay. And yet the one who is being taken care of seems to be somewhat oblivious sometimes. Okay. All right. What do you think? Right, so what do you think verse 1 is referring to? Out of Egypt I called my son. Tina? 
Okay. That's true. I guess I, I'm asking what sort of, is there a historical event this has reference to, is the question that I'm asking. Evan? Okay. So, but is this also an actual historical event? Okay, so maybe the language of son and youth because it's in the early days of their relationship with God. Okay, I think there's probably some merit to that. I think I would lean that direction. Uh, Evan's touching on a question that we have to ask ourselves, which is, can the same phrase refer both forward and backward? And in what way? Yeah, so if you want to look at the thing in Matthew 2, just for sake of reference, it's Matthew 2, verse 15. It says, This was to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet, Out of Egypt I call my son. So, what is the nature of Old Testament prophecy? Or, to ask it a different way, and perhaps a more important question, how do the New Testament authors use the Old Testament? That's kind of really what we're getting at. Do the New Testament authors sometimes quote it? Yes. Do they sometimes paraphrase it? Yes. Do they sometimes mm, almost use it in a way that's like, hey, this vaguely reminds me of and allude to a story? Yes. And the reality is we kind of do the same thing. Like if you have read the Bible a fair bit and you read through the Bible again, you might be reading one story and say, wow, this really reminds me of the way God worked in this other passage. So then the question becomes, are we talking about, hmm, I guess here's the really specific question I'm asking. Can a particular phrase refer to a previous event and it means that previous event and refer to a later event and it means that event? And if that's the case, well, let's just start with that one. Can it refer to two simultaneous historical events, the exact same phrase, and be like, this is what it means? Bob? Depend on the audience. I would tend to think it kind of depends on the nature of language, right? And I'm just thinking... But explain what you're saying. When, it's he, good. when he wrote this, I would say he's clearly referencing... Okay. And yet, it is referred to by Matthew. Okay. So, different audiences. Okay. Just wondering if, I mean, I know we've, we've talked about this topic. Yeah, but it's a big topic. Years. Yeah. And so, I was thinking about the, <clears throat> the illustration that uh, Dan Seidelman used with the target. Okay, I don't think I was here for that. So. Oh, I thought we talked about it again. But, but yeah, go ahead. He said, imagine a, an archer yeah. shooting at a target. Yeah. And so it's <coughs> the target, but it doesn't stop. It keeps going. Mm -hmm. And it hits another target. And maybe, maybe there are two or three targets that it actually hits. So the first target is the exodus. The second target is the, birth, or the, the drawing out of Christ from Egypt. All right. 
So, some people have referred to it this way, which I think is probably what Dan was getting at, because I think background-wise, like, I think this is where most SBC would be, and I don't, I'm not, I would not say it's heretical, I'm just saying it's one of those things that I'm, not, it's not at all heretical, I'm just trying to think about, this is one of those things I've kind of gone back and forth on, like, how do we understand this, right? So, there's this idea, or to Bob's point, here's the arrow, and here's this target, and this target, and this target. you got to be really accurate to hit that one. Um, so there's that illustration, and then there's, here's this point, and here's this point, and this is referring to this point, but maybe there's this other point here, and this is not referring to that point, at least in the same way. So those would be like a really, really... A telescope. It, yeah, it's supposed to be a telescope. <laughs> you didn't say that, so I... Thank uh, you. Uh, here. You know, like this. And, uh, you know, like a fancy thing on the end here. And here's the sea. And here's the sun. There we go. Okay. Not an art major, I don't know. Maggie didn't get it entirely from me, at least when it comes to stick figure drawings of diagrams. So, here's the question. Can we see, and the, the telescope imagery would be, you have a near fulfillment and you have a far fulfillment and then you have kind of like the historical event. Okay? So this would envision there can only be two fulfillments, not three plus, right? So the thing that we were talking about a moment ago is like maybe a variation on this that would allow for multiple instead of just dual. So some people say there can only be two, the Old Testament one and the New Testament one. Some people say there can be multiple. Kind of the background of a lot of the guys at the seminary was I, where I was at would say, well, language can only mean one thing. So you cannot, like if you were saying... Um, I went to the store, uh, trying to think, I went to the store Monday, and you only went to one store, you're not referring to, like, that Monday as being symbolic of another Monday three years ago. You're talking about an actual, like, I went to Sam's Club on Monday, right? Not, and you don't by that mean, I went to Sam's Club on Monday three years ago. You mean right then, right? And you're not saying, I went to Sam's Club on Monday in anticipation that you're going to go to Sam's Club on a yet, as yet unspecified Monday ten years in the future. You actually mean that one historical event, right? So the argument of where these people would be coming from would be to say, the way that we use language is when we're talking about a historical event, we mean the one historical event. We don't mean like five other things by that. And when you start to say, well, it could mean this, or it could mean this, or it could mean this, the meaning of language starts to become kind of untethered from the actual words, which is a little bit scary, because if we can say things and nobody knows what we mean, why are we saying them, right? Bob? It seems like the breakdown is, or the, the it doesn't seem like there's a, a set uh, 
Okay. And apart from New Testament writers using the Old Testament to claim that prophecy has been fulfilled. How do we know how to do it? Right. Yeah. So, I mean, I don't think most people would read the Psalms apart from knowing Christ and say, oh, that's referring to Jesus, right? Sure. So, is the, as far as we're concerned, is the reason for the, the conversation so that we don't take something and make it mean something else? Or is it so that we have an understanding, a better understanding of how the New Testament writers would use these things and how the, the person that wrote them originally might have perceived them? I don't think that has to be an or. I think both those things should be true. Okay. We should understand how we're supposed to do it when we're reading Scripture, and we should understand how they did it, because then that leads to how we should do it. But that, I guess that's what seems almost like there's no method. I think there is a method, but we're getting to that. Okay. Evan, what were you going to say? Yeah. All right. So we're getting down a little bit to the difference between biblical theology and systematic theology. And I'm not going to go too deep of a dive into this, but here's the point I'm trying to make. <clears throat> These people are saying passage in the New Testament, passage in the Old Testament, this one refers to this one in this apparent way. What are we supposed to do about that, right? This one is starting with, conceptually, how does fundamentally all this fit together? Right? So, um, let's talk about a topic like sin. Right? This approach would say, Adam and Eve ate the fruit, God said that was sin, here's a specific example. Right? And then, based on those specific examples, then we're going to potentially lead to this point. So, example, 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 and then here's the point. Right? This would be to sort of say, here is um, like the entirety of everything the Bible says about something, and then that's the point of it, right? And I'm not trying to say they're different. There we go. Same size point. Okay. Both of these approaches are not, well, what are the dangers of each approach? Let's, let's, let's approach it from that angle. What's the dangers of the first approach? Yeah, we call it, people call that proof texting, right? I grab one verse and I'm like, well, God says blank, so... And we fail to consider the context, which is part of what I think the issue Bob was raising. We need to understand the context and the audience that's being spoken to in order to not misuse a particular verse. Okay, so the danger of the first approach is probably proof texting or uh, in modern scholarship sometimes there'll be Pauline theology and Petrine theology and Johannine theology like Paul and Peter and John said different things so they must not agree and that's kind of like a liberal we reject inspiration whatever kind of approach 
but to try to make them fight, to lose sight of the unity of the entirety of the Bible, right? What's the drawback of this approach, potentially? What are, what's at least one danger of it? Okay. Yeah, we start to potentially prioritize the system over the specific statements of Scripture, right? Or, maybe to put it along the lines of what you're saying, we lose sight of what God is like because we get kind of lost in the, mm, in the... We get lost in the making sense of things and less focused on God and what He is like because the Bible is meant to teach us about God the Bible is not meant to make us fill in the blank, I am a whatever label, right? So, how do we reconcile this? How do we work all of this out? From this perspective, I think it is important to recognize that language is important and we should not use it carelessly or in a way that is... Um, unnecessarily fuzzy. And what I mean by that is if we start to use language in the Bible in a way that we would never use it in everyday life, we should be really, really, really sure why we're saying it should be that way. Because again, if we want to make the Bible say whatever we want, then it's kind of like that English class in high school or in college or whatever else where they're like, oh, well, he meant this by this, and we completely ignore what the authors actually meant in favor of what we would like it to say, right? So we've got to watch out for that. So the takeaway from this one is language is important. The takeaway from this one is, but when the Bible specifically says a thing, we can't ignore it just because it doesn't fit the system. Case in point, what are we supposed to do with what Matthew says? Here's the solution, I think. Matthew uses the word fulfill in several different ways. Sometimes Matthew uses the word fulfill as in Isaiah says Jesus will be, well, not Isaiah, um, Micah says Jesus will be born in Bethlehem. That is a statement by Micah about the Messiah that is very clearly prophetically oriented, right? There will be a historical event in the future. Well, it's not. There will be a future event that, from our perspective, is historical. Uh, and this is when it happens. Okay? So we see that, for example, in Matthew uh, chapter 2, verse 6. You, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least. Out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Okay? How do we know that that's the way that that's meant to be used? Because the prophet, not the prophets, the scribes looked at Isaiah's words and said to Herod, take your GPS and look there. Right? Very specific about a very specific fulfillment, right? But then we come to this thing about, um, I think the one where it says, out of Egypt I've called my son is the 
least precise of the ways that Matthew uses the word fulfill. So, this is to fulfill, he's going to be born in this place. Very specific, very narrow focus, right? Out of Egypt I've called my son. To properly understand that, we have to understand the way that God has talked to the people of Israel all throughout their history, right? We have to understand um, the fact that God envisions and speaks of Jesus as the fulfillment of every person who's failed who came before him, every key, like David, right? Jesus is the perfect David. Jesus is the second and final Adam, right? Jesus is Israel in a very real sense. In all the ways that Israel, the people of Israel failed, Jesus doesn't, right? So to understand a phrase like, out of Egypt I called my son, you have to understand the close relationship that God has had with his people and the way in which God the Son is the perfect fulfillment of all of the attempts that have failed and all of the promises that God has made to His people Israel. And given that huge context of all of Scripture, you can look at a phrase like, out of Egypt I have called my son, and come to a conclusion like this. When Malachi says it, not Malachi, Hosea says it, he's referring to the exodus from Egypt. When Matthew says it, he's saying something like this. Just like God sent the people of Israel down to Egypt and brought them back out to protect them from something, in their case, famine, God sends His Son in human form down to Egypt to protect Him from Herod's wrath and brings Him back out such that Jesus is fulfilling the experience and the providing an example and all of those sorts of things in a way that the Israelites never did the way they were supposed to, right? So here's what happens in the case of the Israelites. Send them down to Egypt. We're not sure if we want to go. Send them out of Egypt. We don't want to leave. What about Jesus? Takes him down, brings him back out. Now, we can quibble over the fact that Jesus was a baby and then maybe two years old and all that, right? But still, perfect obedience. He goes down, he comes back out. There is, at least by omission, none of the complaining and none of the arguing and none of the doubting and questioning God that we see with the Israelites when God calls them out of Egypt. So, um... This is a huge topic. Is it making a little bit more sense? Jonathan, go ahead. Where I'm hearing you say it, it makes sense to me, is that Matthew is just simply saying, without really saying, he's saying this is what Hosea was saying in regards to people of Israel coming out of Egypt by God's hand. Jesus also. Yeah, so it would be more analogy. So we tend to think of prophecy in a very narrow sense. 
because we think that prophecy is primarily about historic, about events, right? And if we see prophecy as only about events, then we have to fit in a framework that says an event can have multiple fulfillments, because, or multiple events can be referred to by this one phrase in the Old Testament. But if we think of prophecy more broadly in the way that prophecy actually happened in the Old and New Testament, Prophecy involved foretelling of future events, but prophecy also involved reminding people of truth about God that had already been spoken and calling them to repentance. And so to the extent that Hosea is calling people to repentance, Hosea is not saying someday God is going to send someone to be brought out of Egypt in a way that you never were. Hosea is saying, Remember how God brought you out of Egypt? And now you're stubborn, and now you won't follow him, and that's wrong. That's, all, that's, it, that's the sum total of what Hosea is saying. Hosea is not saying, and Jesus is going to come do it in a way that you never could because you were sinful and stubborn and went your own way. But Matthew is saying, you know, remember Hosea? Remember how he talked to a stubborn people who were going their own way and refused to follow after God? Now the one has come who is really God's son, who is going to obey God in a way that God's son chosen as the people of Israel never did. He's the fulfillment of all of the hopes of that people. He's the fulfillment of all of God's promises. Out of Egypt I've called my son. In that sense, Christ fulfills this parallel that we see in the book of Hosea, looking back to the actual historical event in the book of the Exodus, looking back to the promise God made in Genesis 3.15. And so there's this chain of different kinds of statements, a prophecy, a historical event, a reminding and calling the people to repentance on the basis of the historical event, a new historical thing happening, looking back to all of the history that came before and all of what God had said and all of what God is doing that basically says, Jesus is the point of history, and he's doing perfectly all the thing that mankind failed to do, so believe in him. So it's this, this huge development, and I think part of the reason that Matthew and Hosea don't necessarily make sense to us is because for m most of us, we tend to focus primarily on the New Testament and not see how all of the things in the Old Testament point to the things in the New Testament. And then when we see a statement like that, we're like, well, there's got to be one verse in the Old Testament that this refers to, and, and this points to this, and it's just those two verses. Instead of it being a conversation between that passage in the New Testament and the entirety of everything that God had done beforehand. Is that, Bob? So as you're saying this, I'm thinking, all right, well, it's often touted that Jesus fulfilled over 200 prophecies, something like that. Yeah. I don't remember the exact number. Yep. And this is one of them. Yep. Right? So is it because we kind of latch on to those things that it prevents us from having understanding of what that actually means because we get I mean I know I'm sure it's been said hundreds if not thousands of times 
you should believe in Jesus. He's the only one that fulfilled over 200 prophecies. Yeah. And so it's almost, again, it's a bragging rights type of thing. And yet there's no passage in the Bible that says Jesus fulfilled over 200 prophecies. It's pointed out as a matter of fact. So I, I don't know. If when we become overly focused on like, well, I think the premise is flawed to begin with. Because someone who is spiritually dead and hates God is not going to be convinced whether it's 10 prophecies Jesus fulfilled or 300, right? So the reason people latch on to look at the hundreds of prophecies that Jesus fulfilled is because we think we can argue people into heaven, and that's not how it works. So it's a, it's a particular approach to apologetics that kind of drives the let's count how many prophecies are fulfilled. I think it would be far more helpful to say Jesus is the fulfillment of all that God has been doing in the world. There's sort of this sense in the scriptures that, that, that all of human history is bent toward Bethlehem and Calvary. Like God is sort of like funneling every historical event so that the Romans build roads so that Mary and Joseph can get to where they need to go. The governor just says randomly, hey, let's have a tax this year. You've got to go home. Um, they just happen to be born in the same city that David was born in. Mary happens to be born from the kingly line on, on her side of the family. Joseph is from the kingly line, but they were cursed by God that they would never have descendants to sit on the throne because of their stubborn rebellion. So he couldn't actually be the biological father of Jesus, so there had to be a virgin. But like, there's all of these details that God constrains to put them exactly where he wants them to be. And so... Um, Sometimes people get irritated about this book. But there's a, um, there's a book that's, uh, I think it's called the Jesus Storybook Bible or something like that. And it says at the beginning, and I know this is a little bit of a marketing phrase, but there's a sense in which it's true. Every story whispers his name. So, personally, when I hear a story like, mm, the guys are chopping wood and the axe head falls in the water, and Elisha throws the stick in, and, or has them throw a stick in, and the axe head floats. Some people are like, oh, the stick is the cross, and the axe head is you, sunk in the mire of sin. And that sounds really great, because it sounds like Psalm 40, and it sounds like all the sort of, you know, christian kind of imagery that we're prone to. I think the point is simply, God was delivering this person from loss of ability to, like, he literally can't do his work without his tool that's lost down here and God's showing kindness to him and all that sort of thing. So do we see God's kindness demonstrated? Yes. Is it like this really involved picture of the cross? I think that's probably a stretch. So when I say every story whispers his name, sometimes we look at it and think it's that. I think we need to let somebody in. Um, and, uh, and we think that, so then we're like, but it's not in the Old Testament, Right? That's not my point. My point is not to say use the Bible in strange and creative ways that are kind of like stretching a little bit, grasping at straws. My point is to say all of the things that God is doing are leading to this point at which Jesus is going to be born, live, die, be buried, resurrected, ascended, and all that sort of thing. Bob? Is it fair to say then that Jesus' life, period, 
life, death, resurrection, <coughs> his existence fulfilled God's plan and all of these things, the mention of Matthew and all the other New Testament writers is pointing out aspects of how he fulfilled them. Yes, so think about Israel, right? 40 years in the wilderness, right? How long was Jesus in the wilderness? 40 days. Is that significant? Absolutely. How long was Jonah in the belly of the fish? How long was Jesus in the grave? Yeah, well, I mean, we can, but there's a, there's a correspondence, right? So you have Jonah, you have the people of Israel in the wilderness, you have Adam and Eve being tempted, and Jesus says no, and they say yes. You have um, uh, all, of these, all of these pictures, right, in the Old Testament that anticipate Jesus. Jesus is like checking off the box, fulfilling every last one of them. And it's not just simply Isaiah, or not Isaiah, I keep you talking about Micah said you're going to be born in Bethlehem, you're born in Bethlehem, check. It's like the entire experience of the Israelites and every time they failed and every time God had to reprove them, Jesus does it the right way. So my, my point is not to say, be careless with how we use language. My point is to say, expand our understanding of how God is fulfilling all of these aspects of things in Jesus' life to say, here's where David failed, Balaam failed, Gideon failed, the people of Israel failed, the, the uh, kings failed. Jesus doesn't fail. Does that make sense? Starting to... I'm not saying I understand all this. But I'm just saying, like, there's a ton of amazing things to think about here. So, you're like, we just spent a really long time on one verse. But, I mean, it ties into Christmas, right? And it's an important point to understand. So we might talk about this a little bit more next week, but uh, that's where we're at at the moment. Let's wrap up with prayer. Father, we thank you for... Uh, the amazing way in which your truth is unfolded in your word. We pray that you would uh, be honored in our mm, in our heart to understand these things, not so that we can put them like decorations on the shelf and you know point them out to people when they come over to our house but instead so that our hearts would be stirred and worship you better and then in turn want to call other people to worship you because we're excited about the amazing work that you're unfolding in the world and because we see how all of these things fit together because you're an amazing God. If you can design something like the human body and we start to study it, we realize this can't have happened by accident. And if we look at the unfolding of history, particularly when it comes to the birth and life and death of Jesus, and we just see how all of this happened, we realize none of this is by accident either. So help us to glimpse those truths better each day and help that to lead to the desired effect, not just knowledge, but, but obedience and love and devotion to you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.